So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn in them to the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. As you're turning there, I mentioned in our opening prayer about uh, the spiritual fruit that the earls are seeing in Papua New Guinea. Uh, I don't know if you've been following their updates on Instagram. Uh, What a privilege, uh, what a joy it's been to be able to read about what God is doing um, among the Malayali. Uh, The earls and their teammates have invested years literally years, um, engaging in that culture, learning the language, inventing an alphabet in order to write that language that's never been written before. Um, And now, just over the last several weeks, um, after having learned the language, written the language, translated some of the scriptures, now being able to share, finally, the gospel story in their own mother tongue And this past week, uh, we've been hearing stories of um, uh, Malayali people coming to faith in Christ. Um, We have have new brothers and sisters among the Malayali. In fact, uh, one of them, uh, one of the cards that I've been praying for is a guy by the name of Saman, Saman Jacob. I put his picture on the screen here. Um, We received an update this week. Um, and in, w- in one of those updates, uh, they were listing some people who had come to faith in Christ. And, and uh, Chad Earl mentioned that Sam Jacob had come to faith in Christ. And I'm like, wow, how thrilling. Is this the Samen that I have been praying for um, over the last several weeks? And so I, I sent Chad a, an email. I was like, is this the same Samen Jacob? And he replied, no, it's not. It's his brother, but on Wednesday, Saman came to faith in Christ as well. So Sam, amen, Saman and a third brother named John, and he was recalling how these these brothers, these sons of Jacob, uh, God is using as a bold and dynamic family among the Malayali and just thrilled at, uh, at what God is doing among that tribe. One of the stories that came back this past week uh, really kind of brought home the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning. It was a story about uh, a, a tribesman named Ben. Uh, there's two Bens among the Malayali that they're working with, and they call this one Bad Ben, and, and it's a reason. The other one's Gentle Ben. This one is Bad Ben. And I I won't even get into the reasons why they call him bad, but he is bad. Uh, He's he's known among the Malayali as being very violent. He he resorts to violence to get his way, and he normally, he's known as the guy, he's infamous for getting his way, and he gets his way through violence and fighting and shooting arrows at people. Um, And this is just who bad Ben was. And we reserved, received word this week that, that because of a profession of faith, bad Ben is now good Ben. Bad Ben is now clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And, of course, we'll, we'll, time will bear that out as to whether or not that's, that's genuine. But um, I, as I listened to that story, as I read about that story, it just really 
help to illustrate and emphasize uh, the passage of Scripture that we get to look at today as we see Saul, bad Saul, murderous Saul, being transformed before our eyes into good Saul and good Paul. The story of Saul's conversion is told in three different places in the book of Acts. Here in Acts chapter 9, it's embedded in Luke's story of the unfolding of the early church. Later in Acts chapter 22, when Paul is in the middle of his ministry, um, he's, um, he, he's, they accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which is a no-no. And so they, they, they bring that charge against him and they arrest him and they're about to throw him in jail. And he's given an opportunity to give a defense for his faith. And so he tells the conversion story of this road to Damascus and what happens. And then later in chapter 26, after Paul appeals to Caesar and Rome, before he gets sent to Rome, he stands before King Agrippa in a more intimate and more personal setting. And King Agrippa asks him, hey, before I send you off, what is it that I'm sending you off for? And, and he's given this opportunity to again tell of what happened on this road to Damascus. And so this will be the first time of many that we'll look at this story of Saul coming to faith in Christ in the book of Acts. But Paul also talks about this often in his letters. Um, he talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He talks about this in Galatians. He talks about this in his letter to Timothy over and over again. And, and I'm going to reference some of those uh, references in his letters as well as the other passages in Acts 22 and Acts 26 as we go through this story in Acts chapter 9. But it's, it's, it's repeated. It's, it's, it's so thematic in the New Testament, the story of Paul's conversion, that it's clear that it was not just revolutionary in Saul's life, in Paul's life, but it was also revolutionary for the church. And each time that the story of his conversion is told in the New Testament, it, 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 there's a distinct reason for its telling. And so I want us to bear in mind this morning here in Acts chapter 9 the reason for its telling. Luke is recounting for us here how Jesus' mission of, of advancing the gospel beyond Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, is being fulfilled. And so this telling of Saul's conversion here in the ninth chapter of Acts is, is both about a transformation in Saul's life as well as how this event is, is just another link in the chain of how Jesus is taking his gospel to the nations. So I want us to consider that purpose as we seek application from this passage to our lives. That there should be both a personal application of this story as we think about our own conversion story, our own Damascus Road story, and how it links up with that of Saul's, as well as a corporate application of the story as we think about how this story fits into the meta-narrative of how God is using this and using Saul to take his gospel to the nations. So let's read Acts chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 19 this morning. This is God's word. <clears throat> but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the ch children of Israel, for I will show him how much he, has, he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of gathering in your name and because of what you've done for us. And we pray, Father, that you would speak to us from this passage of Scripture how you interrupted your servant Saul's life with the gospel. And Father, as we recall how you interrupted our life with the gospel, we are filled with gratitude, we are filled with thanks. Father, may the reminder of the grace that you have shown to us on our Damascus Road experience encourage us to persevere in the faith, and fight against indwelling sin, and remain engaged in the gospel. Father, we ask that you'd speak to us from your word this morning as only you can. We pray for those among us, Father, those within the hearing of my voice at this moment, that don't know you by grace through faith. Father, we pray that the gospel would arrest their advance, would interrupt their life, and that you would show up to them as you showed up with Paul and with us, and that you would redeem another worshiper for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to break up our discussion of this story into three kind of obvious sections. One is uh, Saul before Christ, and then Saul's encounter with Christ on this road, and then Saul's initial steps of obedience and walking with Christ soon afterward. 
In many ways, we who have come to faith in Christ will be able to track our own story here, our own conversion story with Saul's experience here in Acts 9, because we too had a life before Christ. We had, by God's grace, an encounter with Christ on some kind of Damascus road in our own lives. And then we began to walk with him in obedience after that encounter. And so as we consider Saul's conversion story, we'll be reminded of our own conversion story. And I pray that it will lead us to worship him even more and continue to persevere in the faith. But for those who have not yet come to faith in Christ this morning, perhaps as we read through this, you will identify it with it in another way. And perhaps this morning is your Damascus Road experience. And perhaps this morning you will find that there is hope for you in the gospel. Because that's one thing that we have to walk away from this story with. And that is that there is hope in the gospel for those who are far from Christ. If God can save this Saul, then he can save you as well. So let's look at Saul before Christ. What was Saul like before Jesus showed up on this Damascus road in this blinding light? What was he like? We were first introduced to him at the end of chapter 7. You'll recall after Stephen was martyred, or as Stephen is being martyred, uh, we first encounter Saul. Verse 58 of chapter 7, they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then just a few verses later, the first verse of chapter 8 says, and Saul approved of his execution. Paul would later testify that this is exactly what he was doing. In that Acts 22 scenario where he's sharing his testimony before the crowd gathered outside the temple, he says, when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So as a young man, Saul was a persecutor of the church, infamous for his violence against the church. As he testified in Acts 22, verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. But Saul was not satisfied with just persecuting the Christians that were there in Jerusalem. When the Christians were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen to the surrounding regions, Saul wanted to give them no quarter. And so he pursued after them. And so we read in verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so he sets about continuing to, to pursue after the Christians all the way up to Damascus, which, by the way, at this point in our study through the book of Acts, is the farthest away from Jerusalem we've gotten so far. 
Just as we saw last week, Ethiopia was the southern boundary of the ends of the earth. Now Damascus is the ends of the earth to the north. And he's not just throwing them in prison. He knows full well what will happen to them when he brings them bound back to Jerusalem. Listen to his own testimony from Acts 26. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Those foreign cities now including even Damascus. So Paul was instrumental in the execution of an untold number of our brothers and sisters in Christ, both in Jerusalem and all throughout Judea and Samaria. Samaria. Uh, Saul was a murderer. He was a murderer. And he was trying to destroy the church. He would later write to the churches in Galatia, in Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And by his own words to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1, he says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. A couple of verses after that, in that letter to Timothy, he writes that he thinks himself to be the foremost of all sinners, that is, the chief of sinners, or to put it another way, the worst of all sinners. Before Jesus showed up to Saul in this blinding light on the road to Damascus, Saul was a murderer, a persecutor, one who was infamous for terrorizing those who were following Christ and calling themselves Christians, followers of the way. Today, the only word that I can think of that we could use to accurately describe someone like this is a terrorist. Saul is a terrorist. And by the way, he's very sincere in his belief that he was doing the right thing. In Acts 26, verse 9, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He was very sincere in his zeal for the God of Israel. But apparently, sincerity of belief does not equate with righteousness. Because he was sincere in his faith, but just because he was sincere in his faith doesn't mean that his faith was effectual. Now, that flies in the face of, of popular spiritual understanding today. Today, as long as you are sincere in your faith, sincere in your belief, it, do, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere about it. But Saul's very sincere faith here is not effectual in the least because he is sincerely wrong about Jesus. The sincerity of our faith is not nearly as important as the object of our faith. 
If we are sincerely believing a lie, then it matters not how sincere we are. Because what we are believing is, is, is sincerely not true. So what was your life like before your Damascus Road experience? Saul was a murderer and a terrorist. What about you? What were you? Where were you? I was a self-centered high school kid. It was all about me. I was so preoccupied with being with the in crowd and being popular. I was willing to do anything and compromise anything and be anyone just so that I would be with that crowd. And I was squarely on a path that would have led down to some very, very, very dark roads had Christ not interrupted my life with sovereign grace. Some of you might have stories that are very similar to that of Saul. That your life before Christ was characterized by, by very outward and visible vileness and sin, like, like bad Ben and bad Saul. But others of you might have stories that are more like the conversion of Lydia of Thyatira that we'll see in the 16th chapter of Acts, who was generally a good person, who believed in God, but had never had an encounter with Jesus, and had never encountered the gospel. And we're told that the Lord simply opened her heart to believe what Paul was saying, and she trusted in Christ and was baptized. But there was not this monumental transformation from a, a, a murdering terrorist into a preacher of the gospel. But one thing that was true about both Saul as well as Lydia, as well as you and I who have come to faith in Christ, no matter how much or how little sin is visible in our lives, one thing is true about everyone before we encounter Christ in the gospel. And that is that we are sinners who have no righteousness of our own. And no righteousness means no justification, and no justification means no hope of rescue from what we deserve. Saul was a very zealous lawkeeper. He was a very, very zealous lawkeeper, but he would later write this in Romans. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth that seeks to provide justification for who they are and what they do. Every mouth that seeks to, to say, I'm not as bad as this person. Yeah, but I'm not as, I'm not as bad as that person. Yeah, yeah, if you, you look over the average of my life, I'm, I'm, I'm bad in some areas, but I'm really good in some other areas. No, he says, he says, the law was given so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Why? Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. At this point in his life, Saul had no righteousness. Though he was 
zealous for the law, he had zero righteousness. He had no justification before God. He was a sinner who was condemned by the law with no hope of working his way out of that condemnation. And friend, if you're here this morning and you've not come to faith in Christ, you've not encountered Jesus on your Damascus road, then that describes you as well. You have no righteousness of your own. You are not justified to stand before our holy God. You are a sinner who is condemned before a holy God, and you have no way of working yourself out of that condemnation. But God so loved Saul that he gave his one and only son that if Saul would believe on him, he would have everlasting life. So let's consider now his encounter with Christ on this road that we find in verses 3 through 5. So Saul's on his way to chase down and persecute more Christians in Damascus. And out of nowhere, this blinding light comes out of heaven and knocks him to the ground. In Acts chapter 22, Paul will testify that, that it's about noon, it's midday. And in Acts chapter 26, he says that this light from heaven was brighter than the sun, brighter than the midday sun overhead. It must have been quite a light. It knocks he and his companions to the ground, and it blinds him. It blinds him for three days. As scary as that light must have been, then he hears a voice from heaven. And the voice says, Saul. It calls his name out. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and, and Saul recognizes that this is a voice from God. This is a voice from heaven. This is, this is God speaking to me because, because he replies, who are you, Lord? And the Lord responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Imagine what must have gone through Saul's mind in that moment. His entire worldview has just been dismantled in a matter of seconds. His entire life, his entire vocation, everything that he's given himself to is based on the premise that Jesus was just a carpenter from Nazareth and nothing else. Maybe a carpenter that just got a little uppity and thought he was God and put himself up as the Messiah. And when the authorities and the Roman governing authorities crucified him in Jerusalem, they put his body in a grave and his body was still there as far as Saul was concerned. So to Saul, to Saul, Jesus was a false Messiah. He was a false God and consequently a false teacher. And so anyone who followed after him deserved the same punishment that he got. That's why he was on this road. But now Jesus is talking to him. Now he hears the voice of this Jesus, which means that Jesus is alive. It means that Jesus is not back in that grave in Jerusalem. He rose from the dead as he had promised. And that meant that Jesus wasn't a false teacher. 
He wasn't a false god, and he wasn't a false messiah. This meant that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, the Christ. And with that realization, that this voice from heaven was, in fact, Jesus Christ of Nazareth speaking to him, Saul must have been absolutely terrified, right? Wouldn't you have been? Wouldn't you have been? You, you, you've been persecuting Christians. You've been persecuting those who are followers of the way, which, by the way, was a way to refer to those who were, who were Christ followers. It's a reference to John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes, after the, comes to the Father except through me. You, you, you've been persecuting those who are followers of the way, and then you find out that the guy that they were following is God himself, is the Christ. Man, if that had been me, I'd been, I would have ducked. I would have been sure that that blinding light was lightning and I was about to get struck. Surely Jesus is about to exact his revenge on me, I would have thought. I've been persecuting not just him, but his kids. And now I'm going to die. I'm sure Saul thought that. But church, Saul doesn't die. I think perhaps that is the greatest display of God's grace that we've seen yet in the book of Acts. Saul is not struck by lightning and dies right there on the road in Damascus. Instead, Saul learns an incredibly important lesson about God's grace. Saul doesn't get what he deserves. He gets grace. And when we encounter Jesus on our Damascus Road church, we encounter God's grace. Because this same Saul would later write as Paul to the church in Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. In other words, any saving encounter with Jesus Christ is an encounter with the grace of God. Because you and I were just like Saul. We, we may not have been persecuting Christians, but we were enemies of God. We, we were like the Ephesian believers before they encountered Jesus on their Damascus road. Of them, Paul would later write, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He wrote that to people who were alive. He said, you were dead. That part of you that was meant to commune with God it was dead. It had no life. Because of your sin, because of your trespasses, your rebellion against God, you were dead. And then he goes on to say, not only were you dead, but you were by your very nature objects of God's wrath. You were objects of God's wrath because of your rebellion against him. That was us. That, that was Saul. But what does he write next in that Ephesians 2 paraphrase? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
while we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul would later write to the churches in Galatia about his conversion. And he will say in Galatians 1, verses 15 and 16, he who had set me apart before I was born, get that, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. That's what happened to Saul. He who had set me apart before I was born, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Any saving encounter with Jesus is an encounter with grace. It's an encounter where we realize that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That we are by our very nature as sinners and rebels, objects of God's wrath. But then we don't get what we deserve. God's wrath is not poured out on us. Instead, he graciously saves us by grace through faith in his son Jesus. Have you had an encounter with Jesus like that? If you have, then I appeal to you, I beg of you, don't ever get over the grace that God has shown to you in Christ. Don't ever get over this grace. Don't ever get over the amazing grace that God has shown wretches like you and I. We were on the road to Damascus, dead in sin, deserving of judgment, deserving eternity apart from God, but by sovereign grace, we didn't get what we deserved. As Paul tells the Galatians, he who had set us apart from before we were born and called us by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to us and seeing his son for who he is with the scales removed from our eyes we believed on him and it was credited to us as righteousness what amazing grace friends this kind of grace if we never get over it if we never stop being floored by it, can be the kind of fuel that we need to help us continue to persevere in the faith, to help us keep fighting against indwelling sin, and to remain engaged in gospel mission for the glory of God till our dying breath. Church, don't ever get over the grace of God that he's shown wretches like us. But if you haven't had an encounter with Jesus like that, then friend, perhaps you're on the Damascus Road this morning. There probably won't be a blinding light this morning for you. But by God's grace, there is the recognition of deserved judgment for sin. There is the recognition of your inability to escape what you deserve. And there is the recognition, consequently, that you need a Savior. You need someone to rescue you. Friend, Jesus is that Savior. Jesus is that Rescuer. 
Now, I want you to think with me for a moment, when exactly did Saul come to faith in Christ? Bible scholars agree that this passage is about the conversion of Saul from death to life. But when precisely did he become a born-again believer in Christ? When did it actually happen? Is it here at this point when he recognizes that it's Jesus who's speaking to him and he recognizes him as Lord and begins to follow him? Or is it later when the scales come off his eyes and he's filled with the Spirit and he gets baptized? Or is it somewhere between verse 5 and verse 19 that that Luke doesn't record for us? When precisely does does Saul become regenerated and and a born-again believer in Christ? We don't really know. And friend, perhaps that is an encouragement to you this morning. Because I know that there's many in here this morning that you would likewise say, I don't know exactly when it was. When exactly did you come to faith in Christ? What was the precise moment in which you were regenerated and and you became a born-again believer in Jesus Christ? Was it when you were six years old and you came forward at a VBS? Was it when you were in high school at youth camp? Or was it later when you were an adult? Many of you don't know. And I just wonder if we had the opportunity to ask Paul if he just might say, I, I, I really don't know either. But what I do know is once I was lost and now I'm found, I was blinded, but now I see. Friend, it matters very little when you came to faith in Christ, but it matters incalculably more that you came to faith in Christ. So have you come to faith in Christ? As with Saul, so all conversions involve a life-changing encounter with Jesus. And I just want you to ask yourself, have you had that encounter? You can be in church all your life and even believe in God. That doesn't make you a Christian. As someone told me when I was in high school, just because you're in a garage doesn't make you a car. Just because you're in church doesn't make you a regenerated born-again believer you need an encounter with jesus my encounter with jesus came when i was 17 years old i was in high school and god was pleased to open my eyes to see my need for forgiveness he was pleased to open my eyes to see what a wretch i was and how deserving of his judgment i was because of my rebellion against him He opened my eyes to see that there was nothing that I could do to come out from underneath that judgment. And he opened my eyes to see that my hope for escaping that judgment could never come from anything that I could do, but could only come from what Jesus had already done. My encounter with Jesus, as with Saul's, was an encounter with the grace of God. So after this encounter with Jesus, Jesus tells him to go into the city. He says, I'm going to show you what I want you to do. And so Saul begins his walk with Christ, and we see in the rest of this passage his initial steps of obedience as he begins to walk with Christ. And we see that in verses 6 through 19. Immediately he gets led by the hand by his companions, and he walks into Damascus, and he meets up with a disciple named Ananias. But why does he need to get led by the hand? Well, because he's 
blind. Can't see. The mighty Saul, humbled by grace and blinded by this light, has to be led by the hand into Damascus. Friend, I think that reminds us that there is a certain level of humility that ought to characterize a lost person who comes to the full realization in a moment that they stand guilty before a holy God. And instead of being zapped with bright lightning, they are showered with God's grace. There is a humility that ought to result from that. That's why someone who's true, who truly understands grace can't also indefinitely continue to be egotistical and prideful, at least not for long, without bowing under the weight of the conviction of that sin, because those two demeanors are diametrically opposed. You can't continue in egotistical pride when you truly understand grace. You can't truly understand this kind of grace and still think very highly of yourself. And so this Saul, who in verse 1 was breathing threats and murder against the disciples, is now humbly led by the hand into the city to meet up with one of these disciples one of those that he had intended to come and arrest and bring back to Jerusalem. And he meets up with Ananias. And this story about Ananias here is almost a bit of a, a parenthetical thought embedded in the story of Saul's conversion. But, but, I, but I see this story about Ananias as a really good example to us of how God intends to use Christians as his sovereign means of ministering to his people. And so we see here that Ananias was, first of all, he was spiritually prepared. He had his own vision. God showed, him, showed up to him in a vision of his own and told him where to go, what to do, and who to meet up with. And so he was spiritually attuned to what God was doing and what God was leading him to do. Secondly, he was willing to do hard things, scary things, uncomfortable things like ministering to a terrorist. This would be like God calling upon one of us to go and minister to an ISIS terrorist who apparently had come to faith in Christ. Scary and uncomfortable. He was available. We don't know what Ananias' job was. We don't know what his occupation, his preoccupation was there in Damascus, but, but he set it aside in order to be available to do God's bidding. And then fourthly, he was obedient. He approached Saul. He put his hands on him. And then he said, Brother Saul, verse 17, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if we want to be used by God to minister to his people, then we likewise need to be spiritually attuned to what God is doing and what he's calling us to. We need to be willing to do hard things, scary and uncomfortable things. We need to be available to him, and we need to be obedient to him. And so what happens? Verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, 
Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. But I think it's so interesting that God orchestrates this this meeting between Saul and Ananias. God didn't have to do that. God didn't have to use Ananias to cause the scale. God could have caused the scales to come off Saul's eyes by himself. He didn't need Ananias. Why did he orchestrate this encounter? Two reasons. One, to teach Saul that he needed the church. And secondly, to teach the church that God graciously and sovereignly chooses to use us. God was preparing Saul to be sent to take the gospel to the nations. He had a huge mission in mind for Saul. And we know that God chose the right man for this job. Because this Saul, whom we later know as Paul, was known to be a man of zeal and passion and courage. But what didn't come naturally to Saul was humility and selflessness and teamwork. And so Saul needed to learn a very important lesson here, and that is that nobody is a super-Christian. And that we all need one another in the body of Christ. And that there are times when we need to lean on one another in the body of Christ. And so he has Saul standing before this disciple, Ananias. And Saul can't start his ministry blinded. He can't even begin to get his new mission off the ground unless Ananias puts his hands on him and prays over him. And only then does he receive his sight and is filled with the Spirit. But I think this also teaches us something about the church. I think it would have taught the church of Theophilus' day something. It would have taught the church that would later read Luke's accounting of this story. And consequently, it teaches us something today. And that is that God graciously and sovereignly chooses to use us in his work. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us at all. He can minister to his people without us, but he chooses to use us. And how beautiful it is when he does. I look out in this room and I see so many that have been Ananias's to me. The chapter 9 kind of Ananias, not the chapter 5 kind of Ananias. But so many who have encouraged me, corrected me with an encouraging word, encouraging text. And I know that it happens all over the place in the life of our body in this church. And how encouraging that is to see and hear about. And maybe as a, just a, a minor application of this text, we could consider how God would use us this week even to be an Ananias in the life of someone else in the church. God doesn't need you to do that. He could encourage that brother or sister in Christ on his own, but he graciously, sovereignly, for his glory and our joy, chooses to use us to do it. So let's circle back now to what happens with Saul. He's humbly led by the hand into Damascus. He meets up with Ananias, and through the laying on of his hands, he receives his sight. He gets filled with the Spirit. He's baptized, and then he finally eats and is strengthened. Two final lessons from Saul's conversion story. 
And one is about this metaphor of blindness to sight, darkness to light. It's a beautiful illustration of conversion, of someone outside the family of God coming into the family of God. Someone who is dead in the trespasses and sins, being made alive together with Christ. Saul's blindness here is a metaphor for his spiritual ignorance and unbelief. He is completely unaware of his condition before God. He's unaware of who Jesus of Nazareth really is. He's blinded to that truth. He was blinded to gospel truth. And he couldn't restore his own sight. He couldn't do anything about his own blindness. He needed God to remove the scales from his eyes. And God used Ananias as his instrument to do it. But when God does restore his sight, he sees who Jesus was. And he understands the gospel. This Saul, later Paul, would later write in his second letter to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 6 these words. He's speaking about unbelievers here, those who are far from God. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I just like to think that when Paul wrote those words to the church in Corinth, he had to be thinking about this experience on the road to Damascus. That he had been blinded to the gospel. That he had been blinded about who Jesus really was. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in his heart to give him the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful illustration of what God does in the heart and mind of one who is far from God and shines in their life the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then the final lesson from Saul here is, is where he ends up. Look at the end of verse, thir- verse 19 and, and verse 20. It says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. What an amazing transformation we see in Saul here. The murdering terrorist becomes a proclaimer of the gospel. He goes from breathing threats and murder against the disciples in verse 1 to hanging out with them and proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God in Damascus. He goes from persecuting Jesus to proclaiming Jesus. What a transformation. And church, our encounter with Jesus on our Damascus road also ought to result in a transformation of our life as well. Bible scholars call this transformation sanctification, which which simply just means a a change, 
a transformation to look more like Jesus. This is where we become Christ-like. And our transformation, by the way, is not for our own glory, it's for the glory of God. God is in the business of transforming sinners into saints. He's in the business of transforming bad bins into good bins. And he gets all the glory for that. Consider the glory that that, that God has received from the transformation of Saul from a, a murdering terrorist into a proclaimer of the gospel. And these first few steps of his obedience with Jesus were by no means his last. He continued to walk with Jesus and so must we. He continued to be discipled by the brothers, and so must we. He continued to grow in Christ-likeness, and so must we. And he continued to be transformed day by day, season by season, year after year. And God was glorified greatly in the life of Saul. May we likewise, day by day, season by season, be transformed into the likeness of Christ And therefore, glorify God in our lives and through our lives. As we close, I want us to consider what God is doing in this story. As we back up now to 30,000 feet. As we back away, all these little details of Saul's conversion begin to go out of focus. And what comes into focus is what God is doing in the book of Acts. He's getting his gospel to the nations. He's getting his gospel to Damascus, then to Antioch, and then to Corinth, and then to Rome, and then to us. He's getting his gospel to the nations, and he's using Saul, (laughs) this persecutor of Christians to accomplish it. And so if we get nothing else from this story this morning, let's get this. If God can use a murdering terrorist to advance his gospel to the nations, can he not use you and I to take his gospel next door? Can he not use you and I to take his good news to the office across the hall, to the person that we encounter in our spheres of influence, of course, of course he can. May he do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this story of your grace and your faithfulness in the life of Saul. We know that when you showed up in that blinding light, you had every right in the world to strike him dead, just as you had every right in the world to strike us dead in our sin and trespasses. But by your sovereign grace, you chose not to do that. Instead, you tell us that before the foundation of the world, you chose us to be your own. What amazing, sovereign grace that is. Father, help us to never get over that grace. 
And may that grace fuel us to persevere in the faith, engage in mission, fight against indwelling sin in our lives. And Father, we pray that you would use us, just as you use Saul, to advance the gospel in the spheres of influence in which you have sovereignly placed us in our neighborhoods, workplaces, and communities. And Father, we pray for the lost person among us in this very room, and we ask that this might be their road to Damascus, that you would show up in a metaphorical blinding light in this moment and help them to realize how desperately lost they are, how deserving they are of judgment before you because of their waywardness from you, how they have no righteousness of their own with, with which to plead, And Father, in that moment of desperation, reveal to them the hope of the gospel, the glory of Christ, shine in their light to give them the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, and may they plead the blood of Christ as their only hope to be rescued from what they deserve. Give them the faith to trust in Christ as their only hope. Lead them across the line of faith. Cause the scales to, be, to fall from their eyes that they might see you for who you are. Understand the gospel and respond to it in faith. And there in doing, Father, redeem for yourself another worshiper who will give you the glory that you deserve. All glory be to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.